Hey, briefly, uh, as we transition into our time of sermon, um, this uh, kind of church experience of, of the chaos of finding a seat and getting in here and cramming in here, uh, it's terrible. Uh, I wouldn't go to church here. Uh, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't put up with this. Um, uh, but uh, you need to know if, like, if this is something you're like, man, this, just, this is not like warm and welcoming and, and this is not exact. I don't like this experience. We have a five o'clock service uh, in the evenings uh, that is the same service uh, as the morning services and the 9-11 can feel this way sometimes. And um, we would just invite you that if you're able and willing to please join us in the evenings. We've got a lot more room at the five uh, and would love to have you join us there. So um, not tonight, you've already come, uh, but next week going forward, we would love to have you uh, at the five o'clock. Um, We are journeying through the book of Acts this fall. We uh, have been in the book of Acts for four or five weeks now. What you need to know about the book of Acts, it's the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, and then the book of Acts comes right after that. Uh, The book of Acts has the same author as the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. Luke set out to write a two-part story. Acts is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. It's It's the same story uh, told in part one and part two. And here's the story that Luke is trying to tell in parts one and two. He's telling the story of the mission of Jesus in the world. And he starts that story by telling the coming of Jesus into the world, uh, the Christmas story, all the way through the death and resurrection of Jesus in the world. That's the book of Luke. And then the book of Acts is the ascension of Jesus as Jesus ascends to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And then the story of Jesus in the world would would maybe be over unless the story of the church begins. So the story of the mission of Jesus in the world continues on in the book of Acts through the mission of the church in the world. So for a time in church history, the book of Acts was actually referred to as the continued acts of Jesus in the world. But Jesus has ascended to be with the Father, and so the church continues the acts of Jesus in the world. The opening lines of the book of Acts were told that Jesus commissions his church to go from Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth uh, to be witnesses. You will be my witnesses to testify of all that you've seen and heard and has happened to you from the mission of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And so the church is continuing on by bearing witness to who Jesus is and continuing the acts of him and his kingdom in the world. So that's the, that's the book of Acts. That's why we're studying it. Who is this church and how are we to continue bearing witness and to be uh, the, the, the bearers of all that Jesus would have us be in the world as he sends us out. So uh, what you've missed so far is kind of the inception of the church, the birth of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then we took a little departure, or Luke does, in chapters three and four, where there's this miracle healing uh, by John and Peter outside the temple. And they heal this man who's been crippled since birth. And the church is starting to get some momentum. And the Jewish leaders, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin wants to put an end to this mission of these Jesus followers. And so they call this council. They try to shut it all down. They throw Peter and John in jail and then they get set free because there's nothing to hold them on. That's where we've been in Acts 1 through 4. Now we get a little brief five verse summary of the church in this day. Luke wants to let us know, the author wants to let us know who was this church? What were they kind of about? What kind of stuff were they doing? And it's just a five verse summary of the church in these early days. This, this first church church. This is the very first church, the church in Jerusalem. And Luke wants to tell us kind of who they were, what they were doing, and what they were, to, what they were about. So here we go. Acts chapter 4, 
starting in verse 32, we'll read through the end of the chapter, is a brief summary. Um, we're reading NIV this morning, uh, that translation, sometimes we read ESV, but today I didn't feel like it. So we're doing NIV, okay, deal with it. But here we go, Acts chapter four, starting in verse 32 in the NIV says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. So as a brief moment of some biblical uh, exegesis, some biblical hermeneutics, some biblical teaching on how to read the Bible, I need to explain something that happens a lot in the Bible, uh, but happens really a lot in the book of Acts. I told you a minute ago that this uh, passage we just read was, a, was Luke's description of the early church, of the Jerusalem church, the first church. And that's an important word that it was his description of the early church. There's a distinction as we read stories in scripture, as we read stories, particular in Acts, about the early church, we have to know what's coming to us, and as Luke is presenting it, how he's presenting it to us. There's kind of two categories. Is he presenting to us this story of the early church as a description of what happened that we might learn some things from, or is he presenting it to us as a prescription of prescribing to us exactly what the church must be doing in this exact practice, in this exact way from then and forevermore? Is it descriptive or or is it prescriptive? That's an important distinction to make. A helpful analogy might be, is it descriptive or prescriptive in the way that, hey, if you had the goal of making sure people drove at a calm speed on a certain road, you could post the prescription of the speed limit. This is prescribed to you. This is the exact speed you must be driving. Or you could give a description of, say, a picture of some car crashes that happened on that road. And this is the picture that's being painted on the road. And you might want to drive at a careful speed on this road because look at what you are learning from the description of the picture. So both things might get you to the same end, but are you being prescribed exactly how fast to drive or are you seeing a description and learning from that description how you might act on that road? Does that make sense? So descriptive versus prescriptive, that's a distinction. And Luke is very clear here through the language that he uses and how he's presenting it to us. This is a description of the early church, not necessarily a prescription for exactly what you must do as a member of the church in today's age. But just like a description of a car accident on a road, there is a lot to learn from this description. There's a lot to take from this description. It can still teach us a ton about who we are to be and how we are to be in the world. And here is the description of the early church, that the members of this Jerusalem church, the members of this first church, cared for each other and met each other's needs in extravagant and radical ways. The early church took care of their people. Verse 32, and then verse 34 and 35, reread them with me. You can throw this up there. Allie says this. This is verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. That's insane. 
but they shared everything they had. Verse 34, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, this is the description, every now and then, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This was the early church in Jerusalem. This is the inception of the church. And if you were starting a new restaurant or starting a new business or starting a new family, there would be things at the inception of that entity, at the inception, at the creation of that organization, where if you were trying to build a culture, if you were trying to build a DNA, if you were trying to create something, it's a lot easier to create a culture. It's a lot easier to create a DNA and an ethos of something at the inception than it is 30 years down the road. So if you were taking over a restaurant and you were trying to create a culture of hospitality and service, it's a lot easier to create that when you start the thing than it is 30 years down the road when a culture has already been set. So at the inception, at the beginning of this church, this is their DNA. This is what God is trying to insert into the culture of his church in the world. Look at how they think about their money. Look at how they think about their own people. Look at how they think about their resources. Look at how they think about their time. Look at how they think about what's been given to them and how they treat each other with their money and their things and their possessions. And I gotta be honest, this, my friends, I'm not even talking about just at Midtown 12 South. I'm talking about like in the church, like the global one holy Catholic church in the world. This issue is to be one of the great differentiators. It is to be one of the great distinguishers of how the church is different from the world. How we think about our money, how we think about our possessions, how we think about our resources, our time, our relationships, how we think about those things should be radically different than the world. And you can say whatever you want, and, I, and, and you, can, you can give a whole bunch of reasons for it, but at the end of the day, I don't care how you talk about your spiritual life. I don't care how you talk about yourself in a spiritual community. Your view, my view on money, reveals what we ultimately believe about God and the world. It just does. You cannot separate those things. Our practices, our habits, our, our, our beliefs about money, how we handle our money and our possessions and our resources and our time reveals more about you than almost any singular other part of your life. You can talk about how much you love Jesus. You can talk about how much you love his grace. You can talk about the church community and your love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. You can talk to your blue in the face about what a utopian society should be and all the practices and how everybody should be acting. But the bottom line is, at the bottom of that, What's unmistakable that inside of each member of a local community or each member of a church, what you really believe, what you really are clinging to, what you're really building your life on is revealed by how you spend your money and how you spend your resources. It is, it is inextricable. You cannot separate the two. It tells you your views, your actions, your thoughts, your habits on money and resources believe who you really are. It reveals who you believe the Lord really is. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot separate what you do with your treasures, your resources, your time, your relationships, your money, your possessions, your stuff. You cannot separate your treasures from your heart. They, what your heart ultimately believes, what your heart ultimately hopes in, what your heart ultimately trusts in. You cannot separate those two things. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And it's clear here from this description of the early church that what they, where their treasures and their heart was was that they were going to take care of the poor among them. They were going to take care of the needy among them. It was okay in the early church to be financially behind because you knew someone was going to financially step up. And the church was willing to sell off anything and everything in order to make sure that there was no needy among them. Now, the early church was Jewish. This first church that began in Jerusalem was made up of Jewish converts. At first, it's not until Paul later, who will meet him, uh, takes the gospel to the Gentiles in the Greek world, the, the non-Jewish among them. But this early church was Jewish, and they knew from their Old Testament that it was always God's intention from dozens of places in the Old Testament. It was always God's intention that in God's family, in God's economy, in God's community, that the book of Deuteronomy says there should be no poor among you. That in order to display to the world the beauty and the glory of God, that the people should be taking care of their own people in such a way that no one should be behind the poverty line. No one. There should be no poor among you. That was always God's intention. And so these early Jewish converts are coming into this faith and going, wait, this person of Jesus has so transformed us and our reality that we now actually think we should be living into God's intention for his people since the beginning. There should be no poor among you. And they're looking around at the, at the social care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the people who are the marginalized, the foreigner and the outsider, and they're going, this should not be. We should be taking care of our own in a way where this does not happen. And historians would note for you that looking at the world in which they were in, the Greco-Roman world at the time, there was such thing as communal care for people. But what historians note and why the church was notably different than the way that the Greco-Roman world cared for each other is that the Greco-Roman world, they would care for each other, but only if you were a social equal. We will care for our own. If Johnny's farm gets burned down, if his field gets burned down, we will rally together and help take care of one who is in the same stratosphere of us socially and economically. We take care of equals in the Greco-Roman world. But never did this exist, what Luke describes that there are funds and means being provided for those who are in different economic lines, who are down the social ladder, who are down the economic ladder. And this describes a community where things are being provided for those who are needy, and guess what those at the top are not doing to those at the bottom, demanding that they give any proof or qualification for their deserving of it. They're not making them earn it. They're also not expecting like an ROI, like, hey, I know I'm doting this out to you, but I expect something back from it. Luke is suggesting something way different than a social club or caring for social equals. He's describing a family. Yes, we take care, the church is saying, yes, we take care of people across social and economic classes because we're not a social club, we're a family. Healthy families meet the needs of the members of the family. In the Roman world, there was care for equals, but in this Christian world, in this church that is being birthed, this social world is becoming a family. And so in a family, there are different rules. In a family, you take care of people differently. Do you know how powerful this was? Do you know how powerful this is to a watching world who's wondering, what does the church actually believe? What does, what does people who are following Jesus and his mission, who are bringing his kingdom to earth, what do they actually believe do you know what this practice testified to the watching people on what does the church actually care about? What is the church actually being about? 
This is not welfare for the church. This is not social handouts for the church. This is the church saying there should be no poor among us and we will care for our own and we will reach across socioeconomic lines to make this a reality and we will not give qualifications and we will not base it on merit. We will care for our own like a family cares for their own. It says that the apostles here Verse 33 says the apostles in the church were continuing to preach. They were continuing to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. Like they were still preaching. They were having weekly worship services. They were having sermons. They were, and, and, and they, were, they were declaring the wonders. They were declaring the gospel of the risen Jesus. But do you know, they were speaking and preaching the gospel of the resurrection. They were trying to prove to the people that this dead man who was Jesus actually got up out of a grave and rose again, and he actually defeated death. They're preaching the resurrection. Do you know what was giving them credence? Do you know what was giving them proof to the world that the resurrection actually happened? Do you know what their, like, exhibit A, that Jesus really was a resurrected person was in this context? It was their generosity. Their generosity with each other was proof that the resurrection was real. Because the watching world was going, well, I don't believe in zombies. I don't believe that people could resurrect from the dead. I don't believe that your, your Messiah actually did defeat death. But man, I can't deny the power of what I'm watching over there. Something is giving credence to, something is proving to the watching world that this resurrection maybe actually happened. It was that they were beginning to treat each other like family, reaching across social and economic lines. That the gospel that was being preached had credibility because it was embodied in a community that no one could account for or explain. How are they doing this? How are people selling fields and then giving it to the poor among them? Why are they doing this? Doesn't make any sense. That there's a power in the preached word because if the preached word is going forth and lives are being transformed, it gives credence to what is being preached. They were continuing to preach the gospel. What was giving their gospel credence? Their generosity. That the world couldn't deny. It's been said before that orthopraxy, like practice, the practice of the church, orthopraxy gives credence to orthodoxy. <laughs> Like, unless the church is embodying the things that we say we believe, no one cares what we say we believe. I don't care how good a sermon is. I don't care how good the preached word is. It doesn't mean anything if lives and communities aren't being transformed because of what's being preached. This city does not need a church that meets its budget. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about, hey, you better be generous, and you saw the bar graphs, like you should be, come on. That's all we're talking about. It's talking about, is there a generous community that the world can't account for? How is that possible that at Midtown 12 South, there's no poor among them? How's that possible? Because of the resurrection, let me tell you about it. How is it possible that the generosity of the church is, is booming in the city? The city doesn't need you to give 10%. That's not what we're talking about. What the city is dying to know is, is, is this Jesus real? And how are they going to believe that he's real? It's because the church community is becoming something that no one can deny and no one can account for unless there's something supernatural behind it. Is it beautiful? Is it compelling? Is it wooing the people in that this is totally different? Those people think about their money and their stuff and their things and their treasures and their time way differently because orthopraxy gives power to orthodoxy. And this early church was taking care of each other like a family reaching across socio and economic lines. Read a New York Times article recently, and I want you to know that I read the New York Times. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, it was a study done from economists from NYU, Harvard, Stanford, and the Santa Fe Institute. This article came out at the beginning of August. 
And here's what this uh, study found. And they were trying to determine what are the factors that actually help get people out of poverty? What are the most powerful factors that actually can get people out of poverty? And they realized through, through research that over the last 40 years, over the last four decades, so much proof, so much research has shown that the financial circumstances of adults has a lot to do with the families that those adults were born into as children. Like what economic status they were born into has a lot to do with what economic status they may be as adults. But there's this new study that these major institutions performed. There were like 4 billion points of data in this study. And it uncovered this powerful exception to that pattern, that if you were born into this economic status, you would end up in this economic status. And that trajectory is very true and has a lot of proof behind it. But something has disrupted that, where that's not always the case anymore. And this is what they found. Guess what they found offers people a path out of poverty. They called it cross-class friendships or economic connectedness. Economic connectedness, cross-class friendships, people in different tax brackets actually caring and being friends with people in different economic statuses. It had a stronger impact than their school quality, their family structure, their job availability, or the community's racial diversity. All those things were great attempts to try to change how someone's, what status someone's born into to what status they might end up at if they're going to be at or above the poverty line. It, those things can help, but the most powerful thing was cross-class friendships, relationships, people caring about other people in different tax brackets. It showed, this study showed the limitations of all the attempts over the last 40 years to simply try to increase diversity for diversity's sake. School busing, multifamily zoning, affirmative action. Here's what they found. Bringing people together is not enough on its own to increase this financial opportunity. Just getting a bunch of people that are diverse economically or racially in the same room is not enough. Guess what? This very secular study determined if you care about economic connectedness and economic equality in this country, you must equally focus on getting people with different incomes into relationships and friendships. There's a whole lot of reasons why. That kind of stuff creates all kinds of opportunities for folks. It creates a different vision of the future. It rewrites the social narrative. It actually lets people in certain tax brackets care for and provide means for people in different economic statuses. And here's what I would say to this New York Times article and this research. It's beautiful. It only took you about 2,000 years to figure out what the early church had already discovered. This is what they were doing. People who owned entire estates, people who were in, because in the ancient world, the first century, there wasn't a middle class. It was the upper class. It was the 1% and then everybody else. And so here's what they discovered, that this gospel, this messianic community, this kingdom of God actually is where relationships happen, where you care about the people in your family, and now social strata and economic statuses are thrown out the window. Who cares what you make? Who cares what, how many zeros you have behind your, your bank account? I don't care. What these people were caring about is, this is my family now. And the relationships, the cross-class friendships was getting people out of poverty. There was no needy among them. This is how the church should be. This is what the church could be. But it's really hard. 
Like there are people in this room and I, I don't know what anybody makes. I don't know what anybody gives. I have no idea on any of that stuff, but I know what kind of cars people drive and I know the requests we get to help people pay rent. And I know there are people in this room who are struggling paycheck to paycheck. And I know there are people in this room who could write a lot of paychecks. I know the social stratus. I know the economic lines are different in this room. That doesn't mean you care about each other. That doesn't mean the cross-class friendship thing is actually happening, but it's possible. It's actually very possible. It was, it was happening. This description of the early church in Acts chapter 4 is not some unattainable utopia. Verse 32, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. That, that happened. That became a reality for the Jerusalem church. So I hope what we're asking is how? How could we get cross-class friendships? How could we get people to care about people in different stratuses? How could, how could this become a reality? This transformative, beautiful, poverty-healing, cross-class community. How's that possible? The passage actually tells us how this transformative community is formed, and it's very clear. It doesn't mince any words. Verse 33 With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, second part, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. This kind of community is only formed through the power of grace. The gospel message about God's generous grace is what transformed the early church to be a people of generous giving. That's it. The gospel of God's grace makes people, transforms people into this. That's what grace does. That when a person or a community gets in a head-on collision with God's grace, God's generous grace, if that really happens to you, if that really happens to us, you can't help but have your heart be softened by that. Do you, do you know the insanity of God's grace to you? Do you know how lavishly generous he has been with you? I told this analogy, this story, this analogy, this metaphor uh, that I had heard um, at the nine o'clock service. And the analogy goes like this, that can you imagine that a homeless teenager sneaks into a house and murders the son of this family? And then this homeless teenager goes on the run and the police track him down and they drag him back to the family. And the family says to the police, we don't want to press charges. We're not going to repay evil for evil. We don't want hate to match hate. We want love to overcome. We're not going to press charges. Let him go. If you heard that story, you would think, well, that's a, that's a miracle. That, that would take some kind of outrageous, that, that's newsworthy. We should write news stories about that, that they, they didn't want to press charges on their son's murderer. The gospel of grace doesn't stop there. The gospel of grace would say to you, not only are charges not being pressed on you, what if the story continued and that family not only didn't press charges, what if that story invited the teenage murderer into their home, gave that boy their boy's bed, rode him into the inheritance, and then adopted him and called him their own? That would be grace. And you would hear that story and you would go, that's stupid. That, that's, that's unnecessary. That, that, that's crazy talk. What are you talking about? That kind of stuff doesn't happen. And yet it would be starting to scratch the surface of the ridiculous grace of Jesus. I told that story at the nine o'clock and someone came up to me afterwards and said, do you know that's a true story? Sent me the article. 
from a Korean pastor who actually did that. I thought it was just an analogy. <laughs> Works way better if it's real. <laughs> and it is real. Do you know that's what God has done for you in Jesus? He hasn't just not pressed charges against you. He welcomed you in his home and gave you his son's bed, gave you his inheritance, and then called you his own. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is insane. Grace is insane. That the one who had infinite riches would lose all of his riches to pay the cost for those that had infinite debt. Do you know that if you belong to Jesus in the economy of Jesus's kingdom, it is impossible, it is impossible to go into a spiritual debt to him that he won't pay for you. And I don't care if the debt that you've accrued is your fault. I don't care what sin it is that you keep committing. I don't care who you've slept with. I don't care who you've betrayed. I don't care who you've lied to. I don't care what you've done. The grace of Jesus will pay your debt for you. For do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. The grace of Jesus is so relentless in nature that once he's paid your debt for you for the thousandth time, his grace is so ludicrous that when you need it for 10,000 more times, he doesn't begrudge paying your debt again. His storehouse of mercy, his storehouse of grace is so infinite in nature that he actually looks at that reality and says he has to pay the debt, he has to cancel the cost, he has to pay it, he has to go, he has to keep loving you. He doesn't get bitter at that. Romans chapter five, but where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Where sin increases, Grace increases all the more. Do you know what that means? It literally means that you cannot, it's impossible for you to out his grace. It's, it cannot be done. Because where you sin, the more you sin, guess what he does more of? He loves to dote out more grace. But what about if I intentionally have done it? What, about, what if it's my addiction? What if I'm in self-denial? What if I justify it? What if I never actually own up to it? What if I lie about it? Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Even your sin of hiding your sin, even your sin of not being honest about how really royally screwed up you are, even your sin of making excuses for your sin, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And do you know when you've tasted someone paying off your debt like that over and over and over again, lavishly doting out on you in this way, guess what begins to happen to the way that you see your own resources, your own stuff, your own things, your money, your time, your treasures. Guess what happens to those things? When you have someone lavishly doting out on you without limit, guess what happens to us? our grip gets a little more loose on those things. Like how can we be stingy and entitled towards other people when he has never been stingy or entitled towards us? 
How can we hold on tightly to our money and our treasures and our time when he doesn't hold on tightly to his time? See, we become generous when we've tasted the radical generosity of God towards us in Jesus. And here's what spurs on generosity. Here's what makes us into people who become more generous. When you and I have an affection, have a love, have a longing for something or someone on the other side and we don't care what the cost will be that we will incur. When I have a deeper love for someone or something on the other side of the cost that I might incur, I don't mind paying the cost. So when you have to take a hit, financial or otherwise, the thing that frees us up to take the hit is that if we have a deep affection for something or someone beyond the loss and beyond the cost. At the end of our passage, Luke gives us an example of that. He says that there was this man named uh, Barnabas who we'll meet again. He's, he's a main character to be in this story, in the story of the book of Acts. We're told that Barnabas sells a field, which means he was a well-off man. He was in a top tax bracket. Barnabas sells off a field and he comes and he lays the prophets at the apostles' feet. And he doesn't even say, I need a plaque on the building. He doesn't even say, I want to tell you how this money should be spent. He leaves it at the apostles' feet and says, it's yours. Because Barnabas had a love for the church and a love for the apostles and a love for the poor among them that said, I, would, I love that more than I love the cost that I will incur from selling this field. I don't know how much the field was making him. I don't know how much the field was a part of his retirement or his 401k. You know, I don't know how much, I don't know how much it was what he was banking on. He didn't care about the cost and the loss because he loved something beyond those things. That's exactly what the Bible says is how the Lord sees you and the cost he was willing to pay. He had a deep affection for something or someone beyond the cost it would cost him to sacrifice. At great cost to himself, the Bible says, he was willing to sell off everything in order to get what he loved more. You were his pearl of great price, that he was willing to sell off everything, to lose everything in order to obtain his treasure. Do you know how great, do you know how like Romans chapter five can say things like where sin increases, grace increases all the more? Do you know how that's like, legally possible in the economy and the judgment of the kingdom? It's because all the debt that you and I accrue for all the sin and all the lust and all the lying and all the fantasizing and all the wrath and all the betrayal and all the hatred and all the selfishness and all the pride, do you know all of that debt that's accruing on us that one day there will be a judgment day and one day there will be a call for the debt to be paid for all the debt that we've accrued. And you can hear that line of Romans 5 and say, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. How's that gonna be possible when the, the number's called and I've got something to pay? Because Jesus, by his once and for all sacrifice, has already taken your judgment day and all the debt that you will owe, all the debt you already owe, and all the debt you will owe. And he's paid it in full. He's taken what your future judgment day would be, what you would owe one day to the maker of the cosmos, and he said, I've already paid for whatever that debt will accrue to. He has taken your judgment day and brought it into the present and said, to Telestai, paid in full, it is finished. He's paid off your future debt already. 
by his once and for all sacrifice, the book of Hebrews says. You can't accrue too much debt because the debt has already been paid. The final debt has already been paid. That's how where sin increases, grace increases all the more. It's already done. And so, Midtown, if we are not generous people, there is a direct correlation. There is a direct line of our lack of generosity. Here's all that that reveals. Here's what this exposes in all of us. If we are not prone to be generous, you know what that means? You have no idea how generous Jesus has been with you. It's like the number one indicator that when we do this, when we hold on tightly, and this is mine, and I worked for it, and, I won't, and they didn't work hard as I did, and I, I have to do this, then all that that says is not that, hey, you really need to think about 10%. What that says is you have no idea how lavishly generous God has been with you in Jesus. And if you don't know how generous God has been with you in Jesus, here's one way to find out. Go try to be generous, and you'll find out how friggin' hard it is You'll find out how near impossible it is to give sacrificially. You'll find out how hard it is to give over and above what you've already decided you should be giving. And maybe it's not even just your money. Maybe you don't have any money. Maybe it's just how lavishly generous you need to be with your time, the resources, the treasures, the gifts that you have. And when you try to go be generous, you realize how impossible it is. And when you see the impossibility of being generous on your own, you might begin to understand the lavish grace, the lavish, generous grace of God for you in Jesus. And so our hope here is not that, hey, we need to make sure that you, you give to Midtown. We're talking about, are you a giver? Are you generous? Like, does the world look at you, the church, and say, I have no idea how they think that way about money? I got questions about their resurrection. I got questions about their philosophies. I got questions about their theology. I can't argue with the generosity I see. Not because 12 South made budget, but because you know what it's like to actually give sacrificially, to actually testify to the grace that you've been shown. That's the hope here. That's who we want to become. That's who we want to be known as lavishly generous people that when people ask us, we would go, let me tell you about my lavishly generous father. Let me tell you what made me this way. Let me tell you why I don't think about stuff and money and possessions and time the way the world does. I've been softened by that. That's our hope here. So let's pray and then we'll sing about it together. Jesus, we are stingy. We're entitled we think that all this stuff, we think that the money, we, 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 we're, we're, we have a scarcity mindset that there won't be enough. We believe not just that your providing for us would run out, we, provi- we believe that your kindness to us will run out. You give the sparrows and the lilies what they need, but we don't believe it's true for us. So we hold on tightly because we're afraid. We hold on tightly because we're selfish. We hold on tightly because we're stingy and Jesus, you weren't any of those things towards us. Pray that for those of us in this room that have grown up in, in the church that know about your grace, that you would, you would flood us this morning. You would stick us under the waterfall of grace where we wouldn't be able to leave here unchanged. We would say, I thought that if I were this way, his grace would run out. I thought that if, I, if this were my reality, his grace would be done. Would you prove us wrong this morning, Jesus? Show us the waterfall of grace and how it never ends because you've paid our final debt in full. That we might be a people of grace because the grace we've been shown, we pray in your name, amen.